It takes away our breath. And we, we call this series Breathless. And we're going to end our series today, and we're going to look at one more individual. But as I was preparing this, I, I, I realized, you know, sometimes everybody's not on the same page. You understand? Well, we, we're, not, we're not all coming from the same thing. We all have different circumstances, different situations. And, and so I, I thought about that. And so I, I'm going to open this one a little bit different. And if, if this is where you are, it's okay to be here. Okay? It's all right. But we, we, we said, and we've said several times, this little quote, Life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breaths away. Now, that moves me. But you know what? You may be in a situation or a circumstance right now where you're just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I've heard this before. It's okay. I've been there before too. I know what that's like. I mean, you, you don't know. You know, you may say, preacher, you don't know where I am. You don't know how long I've been here. So how can you say that God has a purpose for me, much less a divine purpose? How do you know that? How can you claim God has a divine appointment for me or that's waiting on me when I've struggled with this condition, or I've struggled with this situation, or I've been in this circumstance for, for God knows how long. How can you say that? How can you say God wants to take my breath away when I'm not even sure God remembers who I am? Or even knows I'm breathing anymore? You ever been there? You ever felt like that? Those are good questions. Okay? Those are really good questions. They deserve an answer, I think. I can say that because I know this. I know that God loves every one of us. I know that. That's what Scripture teaches. God, God proclaimed it in John 3.16 when He said, For God so loved the world. The world is us. Okay? It's individuals. It's, it's you and me. It's, it's Mary and Bill and Joe and Susie and Tom. It's, it's people. It's, it's not so much a group. It's individuals. God loved us so much individually that He sent His Son individually to die for us. I know that, that, that He loves us because He demonstrated it according to Romans, 8, Romans 5 chapter 8. But, but for God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, He demonstrated His love for us when we didn't even care. When we could have cared less who He was, He demonstrated His love. He, 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 Jesus prayed it. And I, I took this passage out of the New Living Translation because I'll never forget reading this passage out of the New Living Translation. It's in John chapter 17. And if you're familiar with John 17, it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's when Jesus uh, is he's about to be arrested and he's praying. He's praying for his disciples. And, and he prays a whole bunch of things in there. And a lot about them and me and me and them and they and God. And, and you know what? You get confused at times in it. But there's a place in that prayer where he says this. And I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. He's talking to his father and he says, You, you God, love them as much as you love me. Don't you let that settle just a minute. It, it wiped me out. God loves me as much as he loves his son Jesus. God loves you 
as much as he loves his son Jesus. And then the Old Testament is just filled with, with, with places where God tells us how much he loves us. And my, one of my favorite ones is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. God says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you or I have wooed you with loving kindness. And loving kindness is, is that Old Testament word for grace. He's, he's wooed us. God knows exactly where you are this morning, okay? He knows exactly where you are. He understands how long you've been trapped there, okay? He, he knows how long you've been in that pit that you're in. But you know what? He also knows what it will take to get you to step out of it. And sometimes what God wants and what we want are two different things. Amen? I mean, that's true. Sometimes we want it one way, and sometimes God wants it another way. Sometimes He wants to heal us. But often we just want the pain and the hurt to go away. We're not concerned about the healing necessarily. Sometimes we want the situation to change. But He wants to change the person in the midst of the situation. Sometimes we want to run away from our mess. But God wants to teach us how to clean up the mess so that we won't make the mess again. Y'all know what I'm talking about? More often than not, we want the easy way out. You know what? Easy has nothing to do with it because God's the only way out. He's the only way out. And it's not always easy to get out of what we've gotten ourselves into. Amen? God knows where you're at this morning. And God has scheduled an appointment for you. And I believe this morning that appointment's going to be for some people. I believe God has a word He wants to speak. And it's not going to come out of necessarily what I say. I think it's going to come right out of the, the words of Scripture. I, I love it when Scripture speaks for itself. And when we just allow it to say what it says. And we don't try to figure out all these and make it mean this and that. But when we just take it literally for what it says. And, and Jesus makes a statement that we're going to deal with a little bit later that's just very plain. But God, we talked about this over the last three weeks, God schedules appointments with us. We call them divine moments. Divine appointments. Uh, moments of destiny. I mean, you can call them all kinds of things. I call them God moments. But all of us have God moments throughout our life. And those are moments when we collide with God. And when our lives are changed. And if we obey... And we do what God wants us to do. He sets us on a new path. And we begin to walk in a different place. And we're going to meet a man this morning who had pretty much given up on life. He was in pretty sad shape. He was just going through the motions. He didn't have any hope of anything changing. Every day was the same. The location was the same. The situation was the same. You ever been there? It's just kind of flat line. No ups, there's no downs, it's just eh, just like that. It's boring. It's not interesting. But you know what? It's where we are sometimes. And here was a man, and, and if, you, if you want to be turning, turn to John chapter 5. But here's a man 
who has no, we don't know what his name is. And if you've been paying attention to uh, the last three sermons, that's the kind of people we've been looking at. We've been looking at people who don't have a name necessarily in Scripture. They have a name, God knows their name, but he chose to leave the person as the man or the woman. And I've said this before, I really believe that he did that so that we would plug ourselves into their situation. And so we want to look at a man this morning that I believe God wants us to rent or lease space in his skin for a few minutes, okay? He wants us to move into this guy and just be him for a few minutes. And for most of us, it won't be real hard. Now, his condition may be a little bit hard to imagine, but his situation, I think we can all relate to. Divine appointments, God encounters, the life-changing kind of things, they still happen, folks. They didn't just happen in the Bible. They happen every day to people just like us. In fact, they've happened to some of you this week. I had a life-changing moment this week, okay? I saw my life flash before my eyes. I was up on a ladder for a moment or two. I realized all of a sudden time stood still. I realized I'm going to fall. There's nothing I can do. Where am I going to hit? The tractor and the bush hog is where I'm going. All I need to do is this. I hit the bush hog right on a brace. My head bounced off of it. And I thought, this is not going to be good. So I sat there a while. Well, I looked at my arm. And it was bleeding and it puffed up. And I thought, I broke my arm. I got to wiggling my fingers. They were okay. Moved my wrist. I thought, well, that's not a problem. So I, I was afraid to touch my head. You know, you know what I mean? You know, I mean, I didn't bounce off the ground. I bounced off a piece of steel that, that, that had an edge on it. And I was just afraid. I thought, I'm going to have to go to the hospital. I really don't want to tell Kathy this. I just really don't want to do this. So I reach up there, and it's, I can feel blood. And I thought, yeah, I better go around there. So I go get me a, a paper towel, and I start dabbing. I'm thinking, well, I busted my head. And I hate to say this. This is how vain I, I am. But you know what? I thought, they're going to have to shave some of my hair off. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. They're going to have to cut a big old gap out. And gonna have to, you know, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I'm, I'm just, they'll have to shave a place, and then I'll just ask my well get it cut off because it's just, you know, y'all know what I'm talking No, none of y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm dabbing, and I'm thinking, okay, I, you know, there's blood everywhere. So I thought, well, I just better go up there and get some help. So I go up there. I said, Katie, come here and help me. So she said, oh, my gosh, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. I fell and da 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 Well, I didn't bust my head. I just cut my ear all up, okay? And it's bleeding. I mean, I'll just tell you, if you nick your ear, it's going to put some blood out. So anyway, that could have been a moment, honestly, that could, I mean, I mean, let's just be honest, that could have changed my life. God protected me. Now, he let me pay a little bit of price for my stupidity, but, you know, they still happen. And some of you have had life-changing moments this week. You've gotten a message that that's changed your life. I'm going to read John chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first uh, nine verses. Now, after these things, 
After what things? Well, after Jesus has, has been in Cana of Galilee and he's healed a, a, a royal official in Capernaum's son and, and he's been on, a, on a, a, a healing tour and he's just done a, a ton of things. He goes, Scripture says, that after these things there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And every time you read someone going to Jerusalem, they go up to Jerusalem. They don't go down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountaintop. And to get there, you have to go up. Okay? Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now your Bible may not have the next verse and a half, and it may have the next verse and a half. This verse and a half is greatly debated as to whether it was in the original or not. But I'm going to put it this way. When John records what the man, the crippled man said, he validated what this verse says, okay? That's why he's there. So if there's any, I'll explain a little bit more. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just be blessed. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been ill, or been sick, or been literally the, the word is is weak, and it, it comes from the word asthenia, myasthenia. You've heard of myasthenia gravis. It's the word asthenia. It's weakness. He's been ill. He's been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, and that he'd been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath on that day. Now I'm not going to deal with the Sabbath issue. I mean, the rest of the chapter, uh, Jesus has a running battle with the Pharisees and the religious leaders over whether or not you should heal somebody on the Sabbath and whether somebody could carry their pallet or not. I'm not going to deal with that, okay? I'm going to deal with, with this man and, and his situation. Jesus had had come from Galilee, as I mentioned earlier, and he's come to celebrate one of the feasts in Jerusalem. Every Jewish male had to appear in Jerusalem, if at all possible. If he was in the country, he had to appear in Jerusalem three times a year. He had to come on the Feast of Passover, he had to come on the Feast of Pentecost, and he had to come on the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a part of the covenant. And so that's how they reconnected. That's how they, they reconnected with their, their worship site, with the, with the worship of their religion. That's how they reconnected with God in a sense. And so every male was required to come. And so Jesus is fulfilling the law. And so he's probably, the, the feast that he's talking about here that John mentions is probably Passover. We don't know that for sure, but it's likely Passover. Jerusalem was a city that was normally populated by twenty or 30,000 people. That's a pretty good little town. But when these feasts 
days would happen. Pilgrims would come out from all over the nation, and their population would swell to five times that. It would climb to 150,000 people. And if you've been to Jerusalem, which is it's a modern city, but in the old city, it's not, it's not the same exact city as it was in Jesus' day, but it's very close. And the streets are narrow. And, and it's just amazing. And I just think about that, and I think 150,000 people. Well, they were, they were all over each other. I mean, it was pushing, shoving everywhere you want to go. And so Jesus, though, is on a mission. He's come to celebrate Passover. He's come to go to the temple. He's come to, to connect. But he's also come on a mission. You see, he's headed somewhere specifically. He's got an appointment with a certain man that doesn't even know it. And the Bible says that he enters the city through, which was, through what was once called the Sheep Gate. And if, if you go to Israel today, it's, it's the same gate as St. Stephen's Gate or the Lion Gate. That's what it would be. But he's gone through the Sheep Gate. And the Sheep Gate was the place where they brought the sheep in they were going to be used for sacrifice. And they would take them up into the temple area and use them for sacrifice. That's why it's called the Sheep Gate. Now, by that gate, which is, if you're standing facing, well, let's just do it this way. Y'all are all on my right. We'll do it this way. If you're standing facing the temple from the Mount of Olives, you're looking directly into the eastern gate. There's the temple. On the right, on the northern edge, on the right, the eastern side of the, of the, of the valley there, is, 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 a, is a pool. It's called the Pool of Bethesda. And it was a pool that was surrounded with five porticos. Now, if, if you're like me, I don't know what a portico was exactly, okay? But it, what it is is it's a series of columns with a roof on it. It provides a shade. And for years and years and years, they, they dis- disputed whether or not this was real or not until they excavated it, Okay? And guess what? It was real. And you can see it today. Now, it's down deep in a hole because you have to understand they've built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt and built and rebuilt for, five, for hundreds of years until those spots, a lot of them are, are way down. And you can see the pool of, of Bethesda today. You can see the steps down to it. Well, these porticos surrounded it. And when they excavated it, they found that they, they had one side... Another side, the two ends, but then they found in the center another portico. So there were five porticos, five porches. And this this pool was supplied by a dam that had been built eight centuries earlier to provide water for Jerusalem. In fact, if you go to Isaiah chapter 32, I mean 36, 2, it's called the upper pool. When, when Rabshakeh comes, if you like that name, Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria's general, that's where he stands and declares that, you know what? God's given us this city. Tells Hezekiah that, the upper pool. That's it's the same pool. And this pool served two Two purposes. You're going to get a lot of history this morning, okay? Because I think it's important for us to understand background. It'll help us understand what's going on around Jesus, what he's walking through, what he's doing, all the other things that are going on. Because there's all kinds of stuff going on as Jesus walks into this place. This pool had two purposes. It served as a, as a mikvah. It was a place where pilgrims who were coming to worship in the temple would take a ritual bath. Cleansing was a big deal 
in, in Jewish worship. And if you go to Israel today, if you go to Qumran, and you go to the place of the Essenes, you will see these mikvahs. You will see these ritual baths. We, we would call them baptismal pools, in a sense. But, but you'll see them. They're, they're, they've, they've excavated them. And so some of the, the pilgrims would come, and they would dip themselves in the water. And then they would, it, was, it was part of the purification rite. And then they would go up to the temple and worship. But there was also another purpose for this pool. And this was probably, though the, the Jewish leaders didn't like this, this was probably the primary purpose as far as the people in the, in the city were concerned. It was a hospital. It's where the sick were. Now, it's not like the hospitals we're used to, okay? There were no separate rooms. There were just steps. And if you got there early enough, you got under the shade. And if you didn't get there early enough, you, you lay in the sun. And so, in many places in Israel and, and in other parts of the world, the, the water had healing elements in it. And some of, the, some of the water was mineral water. Some of it was, 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 uh, was heated water, thermal water. And it was healthy. If you go to the Dead Sea now, doctors from all over Europe send people to the Dead Sea with skin diseases because uh, the, the mud, uh, it looks like it came right out of a, of a, of a, a grease trap. Okay, if you all understand what I'm going no further with that, that's what it looks like. But that's, that's not what it is. The minerals, it, it's, it's healthy. And so it was, a, it was a normal thing. People would come and, and they would, they would uh, bathe in the waters. And it was a healthy thing. Now, the Romans had taken Jerusalem. They'd taken Palestine. In fact, they were in charge of the world, basically. They were in control of it. And the Romans incorporated and brought with them things that were part of their religion, which had been a part of the Greek religion. And so, probably very close to this pool was something called an Asclepion. And you say, what's an Asclepion? It's a healing place. That's the, that's the Greek word for healing, Asclepion. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from a, a temple. They worshipped a god in their pantheon of gods called Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing. How many of you are in the medical profession? How many of you have ever seen the little staff with a serpent on it? That's the symbol of Asclepius. That's where it comes from. Uh, in his temples, people would spend the night. And this, the temple was filled with snakes or serpents. And they believed that, I know it wigs me out just to say it, okay? All I can think about is Indiana Jones, okay? That's, that's the picture I'm getting right now. Y'all don't know who that is? I'm not going to invite you into my mind. But anyway, they believed that if you slept on the floor overnight and a serpent touched you, you would be healed. That was their belief. Now, you say, well, why in the world would this have been, why would this have been close? But this would have been close because the Roman garrison, the fortress Antonio, was adjacent to the temple. Just yards away from this pool was where the Roman soldiers were garrisoned. And so when they got sick... Or when they didn't feel well, or when they were wounded, guess where they would go? They would go down to their little pagan temple, and it soak in the water. And this was same water coming down. And so they were quartered a few yards away. Now it's interesting, and I just the Lord showed me this this morning that wherever wherever God is at work, Satan is close by. Whatever God's doing, Satan attempts to counterfeit. This blew me away. But you know what they called Asclepius? 
You know what his, his designation was? In Greek, the word is soter. If you've had Greek, you know exactly what soter is. It means salvation. It means Savior. They called him the Savior. So here, by the pool of Bethesda, and I'm going to get to what it means, there's probably a little temple and a place where they worship Asclepius, the false stuff. That's not where Jesus went, okay? Jesus didn't go there. He passed that place up, and he went into the pool of Bethesda. Beth is, is the, it, Bethesda is, 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 is two words. In Hebrew, bet means house of. Anytime you see B-E-T-H attached to a name in Scripture, Bethlehem, house of baked bread. Bet, let's see, what's another one? Well, I'm not going to try to, I'll come up with one, and I won't know what it means. Bethsaida is the best one. Bethesda. It means house, and, and the word hesda or esda means mercy or grace. So it's the house of mercy, the house of grace. Now it's interesting. The word for grace and mercy can, almost, can also mean shame and disgrace. And if you'd lived in that culture, you would understand exactly what I mean. You see, to those religious elite... This was not a house of grace, not a house of mercy. This was a house of disgust. It was a house of shame. This is where all the sick people, all the cripples, all the blind people, uh, all, the, all the invalids and the paralytics, this is where they were. And they are unclean. You know why they're unclean? Because they're sick because they've sinned. That was the mindset. We talked a little bit about that a week or so ago. That's a pagan mindset. But the Jews had adopted it. If you're sick, there must be sin in your life. That's what Job's friends said. There was no sin in Job's life. But that was their belief. If you're sick, then there must be sin in your life. And so the, 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 the religious elite, it was hands off. This wasn't a house of grace. This was a, this was a disgraceful place. And, and, and by the way, it was right by... It was right in the middle of the place where they came. All the pilgrims came who were coming up to the temple. I mean, we're putting on the dog at the big church, and here they come up the steps, and they've got to go through this. We, we need to do something. So they constantly were harassing and causing issues because they didn't want the pilgrims to have to walk through this. It didn't look good. Y'all understand what I'm talking about? They were more concerned about looks than they were about the conditions of people's bodies and or souls. And so, if you were there, and there were tons of people there, it was an embarrassment. Now, there were steps down to this pool, and they were covered with sick people, all kinds of people. If you were sick, you were there because you were hoping for a miracle, okay? You, you were, I mean, you were hoping against all odds for a miracle. Or, you realized that it was a good place to get a handout, Okay? Most of the sick were destitute. They couldn't work. And so they were forced to beg. And so when the pilgrims came through, guess what? They were, they were either full of grace or full of guilt, one or the other. But you know what? Grace-filled people and guilty people, they give freely. You let that rest where you want, okay? Sometimes we give out of guilt and sometimes we give out of grace. And that was what was happening here. And so they realized that, that they could get a handout. And so they rattled their cups, and they hoped for a coin here and there. 
But they were there because from time to time, and this is what the text says, God would send an angel to stir up the water. And the first person in when the ripples started was healed. That sounds a little far-fetched, doesn't it? It doesn't for God. And when you think about this place, it was the house of grace, the house of mercy. This is where God showed mercy. Nobody else showed these people any mercy. And so when, they found, when, when, when word got out that occasionally God would stir the waters up and there was healing, guess what? It packed out. Because there were plenty of desperate people who had no hope and no help. And so they would get there early in the morning. A lot of times families would, would drop their loved ones off and then they'd pick them up in the evenings after they finished work. Some of these people had no families. Some of them had no homes. And they basically lived around this place. But the vast majority of those people waiting for that ripple couldn't drag themselves into the water fast enough. See, the fastest one in got the miracle. Most of these people couldn't walk. They could drag themselves, but not very fast. And so they were forced to wait for the next time the miracle happened, or the next time, or the next time, or the next time. And this is the place that Jesus visits. The very grace of God. That's who Jesus was. Jesus was the grace of God manifested. The grace of God goes to the house of grace. And he goes there to show them what grace is really all about. And so he walks into this place. And all he can see around him are sick people. We know this is a divine appointment because the place is packed with sick people. And Jesus only deals with one person. Okay? This will mess your theology up, okay? He goes to a hospital, and he deals with one person. He walks in, he deals with that person. Text says a little later, he slips out through the crowd and goes on. Place is still full of sick people. But he, de- he looks for, for this one person. He has a divine appointment with a man that God had set up before the foundations of the world. Folks, don't tell me God doesn't have some divine appointments for you and for me. He does. He knows exactly where you'll be. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you're involved in. And He loves you. And He loved this man. We don't know a lot about this man. What we do know, Scripture tells us. John 5, 5 says, And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness, in his weakness. He'd been sick for 38 years. We don't know how old he was. We don't know what his problem was. We don't know, but we know he'd endured it for a long, long time. And literally, as we, we look a little bit closer to this text, what was wrong with him had become who he was. It had become his identity. It was no longer something that was wrong with him. It was just who he was. We, we, we hear his name mentioned from time to time as the lame man, the paralytic, the cripple, the impotent man. That's not what Jesus called him. 
He was looking for a certain man. You see, your condition is not who you are. And it can never become who you are. Or folks, you're in a pit. You're in a pit. We know he had been ill for 38 years. He'd been in this condition. We don't know if he remembered what it was like not to be sick. Or not to be weak. Or not to be crippled. Whatever was wrong. We don't know that. We just know that the Holy Spirit calls him a certain man. Now, if Jesus had come there looking for somebody to heal so that he could just stir the Pharisees up, man, he could have closed his eyes, spun around three times, and guess what? There would have been somebody there. But he came, my point is, he came looking for this man and this man alone. Okay? Folks, that's how much God loves us. That's how much. That in the midst of people who are messed up, he'd come deal with this messed up person or that messed up person. John chapter 5, the first part of verse 6 says, And when Jesus saw him lying there, again I say Jesus was looking for a specific person. You see, God hadn't forgotten who this man was, even though society had forgotten God had not forgotten this man, even though the church of his day had forgotten him. They they basically said, we're not going to have anything to do with him. God hadn't forgotten him, and God loved him so much that he sent his son to this place to show what grace was really about. And you know what? This sick man didn't even know who Jesus was. In the encounter we're going to talk about, he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know Jesus was, was a prophet or a healer, much less the Son of God. He didn't know that. He didn't, he didn't have a clue who this guy was. So it wasn't his faith that attracted Jesus. Not in this case. Folks, it was the love of God for this man that brought Jesus there. This man who was down and out and near the end of his rope. God loved this one man enough to send his son on a special mission to heal him. Not the crowd, just him. I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again. God loves you and me that much. In fact, he loves you so much that he would get you up this morning and he'd bring you to a church that's located in a storefront that didn't even exist two years ago so you could have a divine encounter with him. That's how much He loves you. He, he's, he, he would do that so He could confront you and confront me with His endless love so that He could heal you and He could set you free. Jesus understood this man's condition. He recognized that this man, man was helpless and that he was hopeless. Listen to what it says in, in, in the latter part of, of John chapter 5, verse 6. It says, When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he had been a long time in that condition. He knew he'd been that way for a long time. Then he asked the question, Do you wish to get well? Now, I want you to just put yourself in that man's skin. Okay, just, you've been there a long time. 
I don't know if you've been there 38 years, but maybe every day for 38 years, that's where you've been. Do you wish to get well? Here you are. You're hoping and you're praying to catch a glimpse, just a ripple. You're hoping that you'll see the first ripple in the pool. Nobody else, everybody else be paying attention to the pilgrims coming through, getting coins, and you'll be able to slip down and get in the water. That's what you're hoping. And some tourist from the backside of nowhere in Galilee wants to know if you wish to get well. It's kind of humorous, isn't it? Come on, let, let down. I mean, really, it's kind of, I mean, put yourself, duh, do I, I wish, what do you think I'm here for with all these other sick people? Why, why do you, th- I mean, if I didn't want to get well, I'd just stayed at home or laid in the corner in the alley. You've been in that condition for 38 years. You've endured all kinds of abuse. You've been spit on. I mean, that's what the religious folks would do. They'd spit on you. They'd call you names. They would kick you. They'd push you. They'd tell you that you're worthless, that you're scum, that you're a sinner. I mean, they, they, were, they were the kind of crowd you want to go to church with. <laughs> Hadn't changed a lot in some places. I got to move on. God forgive me. It's <laughs> a whole other sermon in my head right now. Folks, this is all, I mean, let's just be honest. If you'd been in this condition for 38 years, you'd pretty much forgotten what it was like not to be in this condition, right? I mean, I've been in this condition with my ear puffed up for three days, and I've about forgot what it was like to be normal, okay? But he didn't know anything different. If he did, he could barely remember it. This is who you are. This is the way it is every day. This is all you know. And this is, you know, I know how to survive. I know how to get by. And all of a sudden you hear, do you wish to get well? My point is we sometimes find ourselves in bondage for so long that we begin to believe that our problem defines who we are. And what we become. We become comfortable with our bondage. And bondage can be, can be sickness. Bondage can be a sin. Bondage can be a situation where you've been told that you are something or you're not something. Or you've been cursed or you've been yelled at for so long. It, bondage can be a whole lot of... It's, it's, bondage is everything that freedom is not. Okay? Bondage means you're chained up in something that will not allow you to be free in everything that God wants you to be. What happens is when we're in bondage long enough, we learn how to cope with the pain. We learn how to deal with the chains, and we learn how to deal with the pains. We learn to manage the pain, and we learn to hide the chains. We, we learn how to smile when we're in front of people, how to put on the right kind of clothes and how to say the right kind of things. But deep inside, we're prisoners of something. And this guy, had that's where he was at. And the sad thing is, he had accepted it. This is who he was. And you know what? We do the same things. We accept it. 
Though it's foreign and though it's alien and though it's not what God intended, we, we become so comfortable with it that we're afraid of what freedom would be like because we've never experienced freedom. You say, Nelson, you are nuts. Folks, I have talked to literally hundreds of people who were so afraid of giving up their bondage because they didn't know what freedom would be like. They'd lived in bondage all their lives. I've met, and most of them were believers, okay? They weren't lost people, they were believers. They'd been in bondage so long, they knew how to manage bondage. They could do damage control. When the situation got this, I do this, everything's cool. Nobody knows about it. Folks, Jesus didn't die to do damage control. Jesus died to set us free. Free. And if you read very carefully, you say, Nelson, where are you getting all this from? Well, if you read very carefully, this man does not respond with the obvious answer. Had I been laying there and somebody asked me, do you wish to get well? What would you have said? Yes. One simple word. Then you could go on about your business. Yes. Yes. Listen to what the man says. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. I'm helpless. I'm going to be this way. Nothing's going to change. While I'm coming down and other steps before me, I'm too slow. I can't do it. But, 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 but. God doesn't do that anymore. Let's translate it into our vernacular. God doesn't do that anymore. My situation's hopeless. Preacher, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know what my life and life is. Well, this must just be God's will. There's a Greek word for that. Bull. It's just bull. That's just bull. That's what Jesus... Well, I'm not going to say Jesus should have said that, but if He had have said that, I wouldn't have been surprised. Bull, man. Oh, you see, this man, here's a guy, he's on his back in a sense, and he's looking right up into the face of Jehovah Rapha, the God who is our healer. He doesn't even recognize him, and he's asking, Jesus is, is asking him questions, and instead he wants to list his excuses and, and why he can't be healed, and he's moaning and groaning over how helpless he is and how fast everybody else is. And folks, his problem is not his disability. His problem is his disability has become his identity. This is not just something that affects him. This is who he is. His life has become a long list of excuses why he can't and why life's the way it is. And he's become comfortable in his discomfort. And if you're there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. His life was misery, but you know what? He'd become comfortable in misery. He was satisfied with the utter dissatisfaction of his situation. But Jesus is asking more than meets the eye here, okay? He's asking more than if the man just wishes to get well. He's asking this, are you willing to take responsibility for your life? Ooh. Are you willing to stop making excuses for what you can and can't do? Are you willing to get a job? Go to the market? 
buy your own foods. This guy lives off handouts for the most part. Are you willing to stop depending on the gifts of the grace field and the guilty who pass by and pitch you a coin from time to time? Do you really wish to get well? Let me ask you a question this morning. In the situation that you might find yourself in, the one who holds healing hands is standing right in here. He really is, and he's asking the same question. Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to be free? Do you wish to be healed? Is that what you really want? Here's a, I don't know if this is a biblical principle, but it's a life principle for sure. And I think it may even be biblical based on how much faith you have. We tend to get what we want. Think about that. We'll work out a way that we can get what we really want. Do you wish to get well? At that moment, at that very moment, there was somebody better than an angel with a water stick in his hand. Okay? With a boat oar. There was somebody better that standing there in front of him. And, and it's, it's interesting. Jesus asks this one question. He gets this excuse for an answer. And he doesn't ask any more questions. Because the next thing he says is command. See, this is not about faith. Lack of faith, don't have any faith, got to work my faith up. Jesus just speaks. Okay? Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, contemplation time is over. In other words, Jesus says, do it now. What do you do? What do you do? When my father, as a child growing up, said, do it now, and I didn't know what he meant do, I just started doing something. Y'all know what I'm saying? Because I knew he meant now. Jesus means now. Do it now. Folks, there's a moment occurring in this man's life. Now, he can do what Jesus says or he can roll over to the other side and hope for a coin or two from this direction. I really believe God's going to move in this next few minutes. If you'll just listen to what Jesus says. Forget about me, okay? And listen to what Jesus says. In John chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Jesus said to him. He didn't say it to everybody at the pool. He said it to this one man. Get up, arise, stand up, take up your pallet, and walk. Jesus gave three commands. Those are not questions if you want to. Those are commands. Get up. Stand up. Your identity is not your condition. It's not what someone else said. It's not what someone else did to you. It's not what you've done or haven't done. Folks, your identity is who God says you are. And God says that if you're a child of the King this morning, then you're a son or a daughter of the King. You're His beloved. Stand up. Get up. Step out. 
Step out of what you've always known. What you've grown comfortable in. What you've accepted. Stand up. You're not going to find freedom sitting down. Amen? I'm preaching to the wall this morning. There are people in here that need something right now. And you wouldn't separate your place that you sit from that chair if you had to. God's telling you to stand up this morning if you want something. Okay? Y'all didn't hear me. Okay? There are some people here. Amen. There's one in here that wants it. God said stand up. Get up if you want something because He's giving it away this morning. If you don't want it, stay seated. Okay? You won't find freedom. You won't find release. You won't find healing or whatever you're looking for until you stand up. Unless you arise from the ashes, folks, of the past and you step into God's future. He says, stand up, arise, get up. And then he says this, take up your pallet. Pick up the bed that you've been lying on. Roll up what you found safety in. What you've become comfortable in. What's defined who you are or what you've become. Roll up the mat that gets you what you want. You see that beggar's mat that he was lying on got him two things. When people saw it, they knew he was a beggar. They'd pitch coins to him. The other thing is it made his condition somewhat comfortable. See, he was forced to lie on the rock and the stone. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to need handouts anymore. You're not going to need something to be comfortable in a condition that I didn't, I didn't give you, that I don't want you to have. Folks, we were not designed to live like beggars. We were not designed to crawl on the ground. We were designed to walk, okay, with our heads lifted up, looking for our Father to find out what He wants us to do. Jesus says, take up your pallet. You're not going to need it anymore. Roll it up. Roll up the crutch and stop using it. And then he says, walk. Walk. Get on with your life. Start moving. You've been frozen here for too long. For this man, it was 38 years. I don't know what it is for you. But you've been wherever you're at too long. It's time to move. Get in motion. Folks, it's our choice. It's our choice. Freedom is here. God is here. Your future is now. Not tomorrow. It's not in the past. It's now. Now. What are you going to do? Man, this guy, it says immediately. He was breathless. God took his breath away. God put his spirit into this man. He breathed his breath in this man. That spirit began to rejuvenate a body that was broken. He began to rejuvenate muscles that were atrophied, that hadn't been used in three decades, almost four. He began to, to make joints get, get loose. He began to make muscles stronger. He began to do a, a creative miracle in this man's life. And folks, it says, and immediately the man became well. He took up his pallet and he began to walk. Here's my question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let's pray. Father. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.